Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Michael C. Bouchard, the host of the Night Stalker podcast. This is uh, episode 171. This is season two. Today, we're going to be talking about the uh, Vernon Creeper. Um, these cold cases come from a book that I uh, wrote years ago called The uh, Missing in Connecticut. Uh, it's an interesting case simply because between 1968 and 1978, um, three white females had disappeared. The After 74, the modus of apparandi had changed because the females had gone from uh, really children to uh, teenage to adult women. Uh, the later ones were, after 74, were found either dumped or slightly uh, brought into the woods and, again, dumped there. The younger ones were never found. Um, the two leading investigating uh Agencies were the Vernon Police Department and the Connecticut State Police. Uh, with these cases, I have a little bit of an indifference with both of these agencies because I had actually uh, tracked down an individual who was at one of the homicides, and I forwarded the information to the Vernon Police Department and the Connecticut State Police, who did absolutely nothing about it. Uh, since then, the uh, primary person of interest has passed away. A secondary person of slight interest because he was involved, probably not willingly, and he didn't participate in the homicides, was was alive up until 2017. I'm not sure about now. I haven't talked to him since then. These cases involve, if you look in Connecticut's uh, missing, missing uh, people, the first was uh, Janice Pocket, 1968. Um, Janice went out on her bicycle. Janice collected butterflies. Janice never came home. Okay. Uh, then we had uh, we had Lisa Joy White, um, who had previously the night before been involved in some. Uh, you know, some teenage behavior. She was brought home by uh, one of the local police departments. Not a big deal. Uh, the next day, uh, she disappeared. So, with that being said, then we have uh, Deborah Spickler, who disappeared. Um, she was she went to a park with a cousin to go swimming. Uh, she had went home to get some towels, uh, never returned home. And the next two, 1971, Irene LaRosa, it disappeared. And then a little farther, a couple years down the road, I believe one, two, three, four years down the road, her aunt, uh, Susan LaRosa, disappeared. So, 
there has been a lot of speculations and a lot of books and a lot of articles put out on this, these cases, at, at, you know, in whole. However, here's the problem, and you know, I don't want to be chopping people up and spitting them out, but you know, here's the difference: the people that are writing these books are working on speculative information obtained from who the hell knows where. Okay. The information I had about this case was the information I had from interviewing family members, seeing police reports, uh, seeing evidence, so on and so forth. So there was no speculative information. Everything was evidentiary in nature. But you have people that have written books suggesting that it was a set of brothers from... uh, Massachusetts, that came in and did it. You know, that's also one of the theories held by uh, Matt Phelps. Uh, you know, everybody knows him. He did that uh, Dark Minds on uh, TV. And, uh, you know, he, he writes fiction, crime novels, and he does some of his own podcasting and stuff. Uh, he considers himself a criminal expert. I'm not sure what that is exactly. Uh, but, so be it. This is where the, the information on these cases are coming from. Unfortunately, uh, these are all civilians who have never worked real investigations. Um, they are notable only because they they have marketing and people know the name. They don't know the background. Me, not so much. I don't do any marketing. My, my stuff markets itself. I have 30 years of uh, law enforcement uh spent time investigating um, cold cases, um, terrorist stuff, all that kind of uh, stuff thrown into into a career. So I think I just have a little bit more experience than probably all these people combined on maybe one thumb. But with that being said, you know, here here's one link that the Vernon Police Department never never picked up on is that there was a person in common that knew both Irene LaRosa and her aunt Susan LaRosa and that was her brother Robert LaRosa who happened just to be Susan LaRosa's husband at the time of her disappearance so why, you might say, well, what links him to being a person of an interest in a homicide? I'm quite, I am as sure as hell he was the, not one, but the primary suspect in not only their disappearances, but the disappearance of the other people. And we'll go on as we go through here. Robert LaRosa had claimed to family members when his sister Irene disappeared in 71 from the house they all shared in Ellington, Connecticut, that he had filed a missing person report with uh, the um, Ellington Police Department. It wasn't until up until 19, 2016 that a family member contacted me and said, hey, I think this is funny because my uncle uh, had never filed a police report. We looked for it. Ellington said it was never filed. Uh, 
Robert never would discuss it with us. Uh, and, you know, like typical families, you know, some took Robert's side and uh, others took Irene's side. But there was a lot of, a lot of case, there's a lot of facts in there that uh, I'm not going to get to today. Like I said, the full interview with all of these people are in my book, Missing in Connecticut. Uh, edition 3 It's kind of an updated edition. That should be out now. Okay, so we have a brother in common whose sister happened to disappear. He failed to file a police report, right? He reports his wife missing in 1973. This is Susan LaRosa. I spoke with um, Susan LaRosa's daughter who was in the apartment the day of her mother's homicide. Uh, her husband, Robert, brother Irene, reported that she had simply walked out of the house and went missing. Uh, all of that, uh, all of that information was uh, basically debunked by me in my interview with family members. Um, the, fi the five-year-old Stacy, Stacy uh, Rosa at the time, she was five years old. Police didn't want to believe her because of her young age. Um, when she became older, started asking questions uh, to her father, Robert, about the situation. He completely denied it or uh, just disregarded anything she asked. But she, while I was talking to her, I was taking specific notes on certain details. Um, she had told me that the mother was killed by the father in the living room, father being Rosa, Robert, um, that she was struck in the head with something. There was a lot of blood in the living room and that the father left the house, came back with a second man who was wearing a flannel shirt, smoking a pipe with, with, uh, a cherry tobacco in it. They brought the mother down and put her into a uh, brown uh, Chevy Caprice and one of the people uh, one of the persons not Robert uh, had had driven driven away with the Caprice and three years later in 78 uh, Susan's uh, decomposed body was found up along Route 84, uh, not not very far away from the location of the crime scene, which was 22 Ward Street, second floor. So I had taken the notes, and I had contacted an individual that was an ex-brother-in-law, and I'm not going to use his full name because, uh, you know, if the police don't want to go after him uh, or interview him, and get a real story, you know, that's their, that's their dysfunctional attitude, not mine. Um, but when I, I, I spoke with Barry P, I said, I said, well, Barry, you know, I'm kind of interested in, in, um, the disappearance of both Irene LaRosa and uh, Susan LaRosa. And, um, I kind of 
Well, I did. I, I kind of misled him into believing I was solely interested in Irene LaRose's death, or disappearance and death, which it was. Yeah, we had talked about certain things and, you know, certain information about uh, uh, LaRosa. Now, remember, back in the days, Barry Prentice worked part-time as a janitor in the Tallinn school system. We went to the Tallinn school system, Janice Pocket, whose medical records disappeared or couldn't be found by the, the police department when they went to research it, Janice, Janice Pockets, who had access to those records after school hours, Barry P. Okay? Bet you didn't know that one, Matt. But, so, with this being said, um, Stacy LaRosa had described the crime scene to me, right? And she said the police didn't believe her, but she says, I know what I saw. And, you know, when you first start investigating these things, you're kind of like, okay, well, maybe, maybe not. But I took the notes, and what I did is, and she she also mentioned that a um, later in time, a friend of hers who had uh, stayed with her and her husband at the time had mentioned that he had found in Robert LaRosa's basement a... Uh, it was hidden up on a rafter, in the rafters. It was a uh, cigar box with a piece of uh, flower-patterned uh, material, and inside of it was a bloody uh, putty knife. Okay, now, I might forget this, so I'm going to tell you, uh, Vernon Police Department denied that this, that this putty knife existed. which was proven wrong. I interviewed four people that knew of its existence. One of them actually used it, and it was given to her by Robert to scrape blood off the uh, second floor of Ward Street apartment. Okay, but they didn't know that one either. But with that being said, so I was interviewing Barry P., and we, got, we, we came up to uh, Susan. I say, hey, Barry, um, you know, let's talk about Susan LaRose's disappearance. He said, I said, no, that wasn't a disappearance. That was a homicide. Okay, that caught my that caught my attention. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, so I didn't want him to give me a yes or a no. So I, I asked him, well, what did the apartment look like? Because I wanted to establish that he had actually gone into the apartment. I already knew he went into the apartment because he was the guy that, that came up to help Robert LaRosa bring the body down. He said, I'd never seen anything like it. He said, I was made of a, aware of a situation. Sure you were, because Robert came and got you. That's why he left the house. With that being said, I don't believe Barry... Honestly, I believe Barry to be the most honest person in this conversation. I don't believe he was the murderer. I don't believe he was quite innocent. But I don't believe he was the murderer in any of the situations. I, I believe he was afraid of Robert LaRosa, like a lot of people were. So, with that being said, uh, Barry said it was like somebody tore off a cat's head and spun it by the tail. Okay, so that threw up a couple red flags. Um, I said, well, 
so what did you see? He says, well, I saw a big pool of blood in the living room. Well, one, I didn't tell him that the, the, the um, victim was killed in the living room, but he knew that, so he was there. He said, well, caught my eye was a large rock that was covered with blood in the living room. I never told him he, she was struck in the head or how she died. Further down the road, I interviewed one of Barry's ex-wives who said that when I kind of brought up the question, she said, oh, yeah, uh, he smoked a pipe with uh, Captain's uh, Red Cherry tobacco. Okay, so so far, everything Stacy LaRosa is telling me is accurate. Five-year-old or not, it's accurate. So, you know, I asked, so after that, you know, okay, um, but he said, when I was approached, I said, was there anything uh, odd when you approached the apartment? Well, I, I am under the assumption, not even an assumption, I know that based on things that it couldn't have happened this way, but he was telling part of the truth in it. He says, as me and my wife, and when I interviewed his wife, his wife never said she was there. Okay. See, this is where I'm talking about people lie. Barry, do I think Barry was lying? Barry was trying to distance himself from the the crime itself. But within a lie, there's always the truth. He says, as I was approaching the house, Robert yelled out to me, don't go near my fucking car, don't go near my fucking car. And I said, why? He said, oh, Susan's body was in it. Well, you wouldn't have known that, but you were the guy that helped Robert carry the body down and put it in the back of the car. Plus, I believe he was the one that drove and dumped the body. Was he involved in the homicide? No. Did he dump the body? Yeah. Uh, is that good? No. Well, considering she's already dead, you know, let's take it for what it's worth. I mean, he would have been a better... Um, uh, material witness rather than trying to, uh, you know, find something to charge him with. But you see, here are how these things correlate. These are things that the average podcaster, the average writer, the ones making making speculative ideas, who they think did it, these are the things that they don't do. They go on hearsay stories, okay? So let's get a little farther into, into this uh, nightmare here. So I said to Barry, I said, Barry, I said, tell me a little bit about Robert. He said, well, Robert owned, at that time, owned some of the cops in the Vernon Police Department. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you got to understand, Robert was a big time drug dealer. Robert was also part of the mafia, which a lot of people didn't know, except for family members. So, he had a very thriving business. And there were people that had made, in the department at the time, not saying now, but at the time, who had habits, did favors, so on and so forth. For Robert, I said, "Well, how do how do you know this?" He says, 
I used to be in the car when we would drive into the uh, police department park, parking lot, walk into the department, and come out with money. Don't know what that was for. Not speculating. I got a good idea, but I'm not speculating anything, okay? He said that one night Robert was so drunk, he was driving all over the road. He was in, in both lanes at the same time. He was pulled over. Cop walks up to him and says, hey, Robert, what are you doing? They had a discussion for a few minutes, and the cop lets him go. He says, I'll see you later, Robert, or Bob, Bob. So we're already starting to see where his influence and this was, listen, this was very common in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It, it was like that. It's not today's generational law enforcement. It's a totally different, different, uh, different vibe nowadays. He says, what really freaked me out, and I said, what the hell else would freak him out, was that uh, he had gone to Robert's house to do some wiring electrical wire on a car that Robert had just purchased with, with a, uh, an old van-type ambulance, which he found, he asked Robert why Robert had soundproofed it. Robert said to him, because I can bring anybody into my van, do whatever I want, and nobody's going to hear it. Okay, so that within itself is kind of freaky. Um... You know where I'm going with this. But if you look at the, the Spickler case, a van was seen in the area. The uh, Lisa Joy White case, a van was seen in the area. The um, Actually, in, in the Lisa Joy White case, the van was seen twice. Actually, now that I think about it. In the uh, Janus um, pocket case, there was mention of a of a, a van. Now you have to remember, all of these people lived right in the general vicinity of where the Larosas lived. And it, it, there were eleven children: Robert, Nathan. Uh, Nathan had mental health issues. Uh, Robert, Nathan had molested all of the children, all the females in the family. So. Um, it was common knowledge for women that lived in the area, um, don't go, don't walk past the La Rosa house, you know, so just kind of set, you know, setting a little bit of a landscape there for you. You, you could take the meaning in whatever way you want. But you see, with this information that Barry P. had gave me, which was the same as a person that was in the, in the apartment at the time. It was all collaborated. It all matched. Now, the ex-sister-in-law, who at the time was, I think, 14, was given a putty knife by Robert LaRosa to clean up the blood that was on the floor and in the stairwells, which she did. Robert took the putty knife back. Now, you got to remember, Vernon Police Department said the putty knife didn't exist. However, I found a, um, a letter... The only kind we had only have one copy of it, which is left, thanking um, an individual street name is Pyle, who actually had uh, been going out with, who had actually found the 
putty knife in uh, Robert's, Robert LaRosa's basement when I live in Stafford Springs, Connecticut, uh, thanking him for his help in the investigation. Basically, what they're trying to say is thanks for turning in a putty knife, right? Um, the putty knife was acknowledged by um, Stacy LaRosa, um, the individual named Pyle, who found it. There was also mention, and a couple other family members knew about it. The letter even indicates that, that that's what it was. So, I mean, but I have a person that physically said they used it to clean the blood up. They, they, being them, person involved in cleaning it up, says the putty knife exists. I used it. I got it from Robert. I gave it back to Robert. You don't need to be an effing rocket scientist to figure out if the putty knife existed and who the, who she got it from, okay? See, this is this is where I, I don't like sloppy police work. It really sucks, you know? It really does. I was actually involved in a case that I did an initial report. I knew it wasn't going anywhere. When I went to the DV, I said, listen, there's not enough... There's not enough proof to say that this exists. Didn't think anything of it. I said, just don't don't even follow this up. It's not going to go anywhere. Well, to my surprise, six months later, there's a federal lawsuit subpoena bouncing around with me. And I said, well, what happened? Well, they decided that they were going to uh, investigate this, and they made an arrest. And the guy's claiming it's a false arrest. And do I believe the guy did it? Yeah, of course I did. Do I believe there was enough evidence to uh, support the charges? No. But you know what the hell do I know? I'm just I'm just the old guy. So the the, the the guy eventually won the case. I mean, like I said, I have no doubt he was the one that did it. But there was not enough evidence directly linking him to him. So that's what I'm talking about. You know, sloppy police work. And then my name has to get thrown into their bag of shit in the paper. And it kind of pisses me off. Listen, if it's not worth going after, don't go after it because it's going to bite you in the ass. And even if you tell people not to do it and they do it, it still bites you in the ass. But but to get back to where I was saying, so I had did the initial interview with, uh, with Barry in 2017. I interviewed Barry back in uh, 2017. Um, the information I believe he gave was the truth. A distorted version of him to, dis- to displace himself. Other family members lied. Um, it was interesting because when I when I spoke to somebody uh, at the Vernon PD, they wanted the, they wanted the original uh, letter from. Uh, also known as Pyle, uh, and I told him no. But easily, if they went and reviewed, uh, interviewed Barry, I am sh- if he's still alive, I am sure that it would link all of them to the other disappearances in the area because these were geographical predators. Uh, these were not people that uh, were out of state. Because out of state serial killers use main roads. The reason they use main roads 
is one because if you go into a secondary road and the police are called or in the area, you don't know the road, you're getting lost and more than likely getting caught. Um, serial killers like that usually just dump the body. This, there wasn't uh, a difference in uh, BMO until uh, 1974, which uh, happened that they were, they were older females, older white females. Uh, the bodies were just dumped. Uh, could have been that at the time, uh, the original ones, uh, Barry Nathan uh, and Robert were involved. Um, there was a time where Nathan and Robert, uh, for certain reasons, had not... Uh, been together, that's when the, the MO of the, the victims and the uh, methods of dumping them or hiding them just changed. Uh, Nathan had passed away at an early age. Uh, he wanted to give a uh, confession to one of the family members, uh, probably about one of the homicides, and the family member uh, didn't want to talk to him, which really uh, stupid because they could have solved all these fucking homicides but you know um so i think there was is a lot to go with here i think the uh i think it's a, still a viable case not as far as getting the um not as far as the um arresting a uh primary person involved in a murder because he's dead and um Another interesting fact is the day after um, Susan LaRosa disappeared from the Wall Street apartment, uh, Robert's girlfriend, uh, Robin, moved in. A little coincidental, huh? Uh, another family member uh, who I'll identify as Ann uh, went with Robert up to Farmington, uh, medical examiner uh, so he could identify the body. Uh, Robert never Robert never said that he didn't do it. Um, so all he said was I'm sorry. So what it's I'm sorry is it a confession? What was that? I'm sorry. Um, and the person he was with said well I understand because Susan used to be abusive to the kids. And I could see Robert snapping and doing that, but at no time did he deny doing it. And he, he said, I'm sorry. Well, was that for forgiveness or what, more than likely that's what it was? Uh, funny, not the funny, it's not funny, but coincidentally, uh, Susan's clothing um, was a material match uh, to the, uh, the material that the bloody putty knife wrapped in. Uh, so that, you know, that in itself, I mean, there's just, you know what, this is not a hard crime to figure out. Also, uh, some of the other son, the other victims uh, attended Palin School. The school system up there. So, 
you know, it may have been a simple fact that they were find, you know, seeing girls that they liked, uh, getting the physical address off the records. Um, it's interesting because another girl uh, also was in the same class as uh, Patricia Luce, who disappeared. She was older, disappeared after 74. Uh, was found uh, murdered on the side of the road. So there's a lot of things linking these people together. And if you, if you read the, the, the interview I did uh, with all, all these people involved, you'll see that, that this is not a Sherlock Holmes case by no means. Um, I, I will almost guarantee you the same person that that killed Susan LaRosa, killed Irene LaRosa, killed Janice Pocket, Debbie Spickler, Lisa Joy White, and so on. It's it's not it's you're not you're, you know it, it's not rocket scientists here. We're not dealing with rocket science. Okay, it's simple. It's easy to figure it out once you put the pieces together. But the problem with law enforcement now is they they are very. Um, They have no interest in cold cases. Only only ones that are within the 10 years they'll go after. Older ones, it doesn't meet their solvability criteria, so they just leave it into the, you know, they just dump it, and that's how it is. Uh, Barry's interview should have brought, raised a little a lot of red flags to a lot of these departments that were involved. They didn't. And then they, they really, I'll tell you what, you know, this is how fucked up things are. When I tell you, People, people's TV shows and podcasts and all this shit. The only reason that they make any type of uh, notoriety, these people, is because um, that they're out there. Their names are out there. That's that's it. Uh, their ability to solve crimes is little to none, but their names are out there. Okay, mine isn't that well known because I do do my job the way it's supposed to be done. Uh, I, I'm not worried about that. St- uh, status favor because uh, I have a, an income that comes in every week. I don't need to. I don't rely on podcasting. I don't rely on my book writing. I don't rely on any of that stuff. You know, um, but it's sad when cases like this could be solved and and they're not. And the reason I call these the people <clears throat> people because there's more than one suspect in this uh, in this case. Um, These were geographical predators. They weren't pedophiles. They were predators. You know, um, they knew the area. They were comfortable murdering, abducting, in somewhere they felt secure. Now, you have to remember, the La Rosa family, besides living there, working around the area, had been in a very close proximity to all of these victims. And in a couple of the cases, actually had known the victims. So, you know, you don't need a crystal ball to figure any of these things out. You really don't. Um, but with that being said, uh, you know, if you want to read more about it, <coughs> the uh, interviews in my in, in one of my books, it's... Um, 
Michigan and Connecticut. Um, you'll find it on Amazon. It's not expensive. I think it's like 12 bucks, maybe. I don't know what they sell it for. I, I don't really look, but probably like 12 bucks. I don't write expensive books. It doesn't matter how big they are. I mean, and the reason I do that is I just, you know, I my books go out there more as research materials for people who are actually looking at the cases uh, and looking for, you know, a place to go, a place to start, or, you know, how to cross-reference and this and that. So uh, with that being said, you know, this is a case that with several of the um, disappearances and homicides could be solved. Uh, I think Barry P. is the only one left besides his ex-wife Angie who will lie to you until the day she dies um, about what happened or what she knows. Uh, Barry P. is the only person that truly knows what happened to all these people and I think now that Barry's older, um, you know, you would hope that he would have a uh, come-to-Jesus meeting with himself and just spill his guts. Listen, he's, he's old. They're not going to arrest him. I mean, you know, he's beyond that point. So with that being said, this is Michael C. Bouchard, the host of the Night Stalker podcast, season two, episode 171. And this is the Vernon Creeper. And I will see you episode, it's going to be 172, and we are going to talk about the, uh, these illegal ghost guns. Until then, I am Michael C. Bouchard, the host of Night Stalker Podcast. And just remember, if you are in a dark place, dark woods, dark alley, dark street, dark room, or somewhere dark where you probably shouldn't be, the first question you have to do is ask yourself, what the hell am I doing here? And you have better assessed a way out before you started walking into that place. Because when you hear those footsteps behind you, you may be the next person we're talking about on this podcast.